We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes 2 this morning, we began two weeks ago, and Ecclesiastes, I said uh, two weeks ago, is good for our souls. It's a healthy tonic. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by a man named Solomon, we believe, who was the king of Israel after his father David, and Solomon started very, very well. He went off like a rocket. He asked God to give him wisdom, and God says, I'll give you wisdom and power and wealth. And so he carried the banner of the Lord well, and he walked in obedience. And then we hit 1 Kings 11, where Solomon basically crashes and burns. And for years, he walked in disobedience. And so this book is written as a bitter reflection of the fact that Solomon blew it in his middle age. In 1 Kings 11, it says that Solomon married women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And it says, Solomon clung to these in love. And so they, they turned his way from obedience to the living God. And the living God who is eternal and unchanged became just one of many gods in a pantheon of gods for Solomon. And his heart and his life unraveled. And so Solomon is good tonic. It's good tonic for young people who can approach life with unrealistic expectations. Is a healthy elixir for those in the midlife who have, who have come to the point in their life where they say, you know, this is as high as it's going to go, and it may not get any better than this, and is that all there is? It's a healthy potion for those of us who are older who deal with cynicism and apathy, and we say, what is the use? And so chapter one of Ecclesiastes, the thesis statement is made Verse 2 says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he uses this word vanity 38 times in this book. Over half of the use of this Hebrew word vanity is used in this one book. And it means that everything is passing and ephemeral. It is a mist. It is a vapor. It is here today. It's gone tomorrow. It is a vanity. And so in bitterness, he says, I am living only under the sun. I'm living for only that which I can see and touch and taste, and, and there's just the observable data. There, there's no eternal perspective. There's no biblical world in life view. I'm living only under the sun, and that's where our culture lives. And so we come to chapter 2, and really if you read chapter 2 and you don't really delve into it, you come away thinking that Solomon is a party animal because he says some pretty striking things. Let me just read the first 11 verses. He said, Verse 1 and 2, the conclusion of the matter, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure and enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, which is silly mirth. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? And then he gives his search, his trail, his pursuit of pleasure. I searched with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. My heart guiding me. No supernatural, my heart. 
and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And I myself made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. And I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Just stop there for a second. In, in the Old Testament, the vast majority of slaves were conquered people bond servants. In, in the Old Testament day, you conquer a city and say to the people, either you can die by the sword or become our bond slaves. They said, well, well, become bond slaves. And also in the Old Testament, if you're under a, a, a huge debt, economic debt, and you can't get yourself out of it, people would sell themselves into a type of indentured servant or bond servant for three or seven or five years to, to get out of the economic hole instead of going to a debtor's prison. This type of slavery is not the chattel slavery that was a horrendous mark on our culture where people were bought and sold and kept and families were separated. This is not chattel slavery. But he says, I, I had slaves, male and female. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers both men and women and many concubines, 300, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing, and behold, it was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says, trying to get, this is like trying to catch the wind. So it's vanity. So, so you read that, and if you, this is very important to understand. Solomon was what we would call an Epicurean. Let me explain that. So under the sun. Under the sun, we live only for what we can see and touch. No supernatural orientation. Now, th th there is, and under the sun mentality, there is hedonism. Hedonism is a life philosophy that says the pursuit of pleasure is my ultimate goal. And this pursuit of pleasure uh, is done without any reference to other people or their wants or their, 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 their life. It's, it's all about me exclusively. Um, I'm, I'm throwing all restraints away and I'm living as one big passion pursuer. Conversely, there's this called Epicureanism. Epicureanism was around about 300 B.C., out of the Greek world, Epictetus, and Epicureanism says this. It says, we believe in the pursuit of pleasure in a socially acceptable fashion. You hear the difference? Let me explain it this way. Some of you know these people, some of you don't. But, but the guys on the left are hedonist. The guy on the right, George Clooney, I like George Clooney, is an Epicurean. 
The guys on the right, Hugh Hefner, who just died a few months ago, who spent the last 40 years of his life as, as a, a hedonist to the nth degree, woman after woman, broken relationship after broken relationship, uh, drug abuse, and then the other is Howard Stern. They're hedonists, uh, no concern for other people. George Clooney, I like his movies. George Clooney is a thoughtful man. Uh, he uh, married recently a Lebanese woman who is a attorney who deals with human rights. Uh, George Clooney oftentimes will make statements. I'll read his statements. I don't always agree with him or usually don't, but he's always thoughtful. It's not vindictive. It's, he's thought through the issues. Uh, he is... Uh, a few years ago, he decided to start a company dealing with um, tequilas. He and several guys, and they developed this company, and they sold this liquor company just a few weeks ago for $1 billion. Uh, his net worth is $500-plus million. So he's an Epicurean. I don't think he has a faith orientation. But, but, but he, he, he lives life in a socially acceptable fashion. See, that's, you read this, you have to realize Solomon is not advocating throwing all caution to the wind. He's saying pursue pleasure in a socially acceptable manner. Let me talk to you about Epicureans. Epicureans say that pleasure is the greatest good. Epicureans say to attain pleasure, this is important, you need to understand how life works. So they give themselves to knowledge in the pursuit of knowledge. Epicureans say that the, the end game is personal peace and affluence. Uh, I, I wanted to live well and have affluence and enjoy life. Uh, Epicureans will say if there is a God or if there are gods, they cannot be defined. And if there is a God, the God is totally uninvolved and he's out there somewhere. They're not in my life. That's an Epicurean. Um, and, and that's what they believe. And that's where Solomon came to. See, Solomon could not quote his daddy, his dad, David, and read Psalm 63. Where Psalm 63 says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As I beheld you in the sanctuary, and I've seen your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. See, Solomon couldn't read that because there's just there's a number of gods. Solomon cannot read Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside the still waters. He, he restores my soul. He couldn't read that. He got to the place where he was just an Epicurean and he, didn't, he couldn't define God. And let me tell you something, I believe he walked in misery. Now, now the reason this is important, I want you to hear this. I believe in middle-class and upper-middle-class America, we live in an age of Epicureanism, creeping Epicureanism. Every person here, probably, with any income, any standing, fights against creeping Epicureanism that says, your life consists of pleasure in what you own and where you live and where you go to school and, and, and your zip code. And we have to fight against creeping Epicureanism that continuously pushes us into a corner where we say, if there is a God, it's no big deal. And so I read this and I go, this is powerful stuff. In a land of creeping Epicureanism, there, 
There are people, I've heard this frequently from people, how are you doing? Which is a stupid question, but we, I say it frequently, just like you do. And the response is, from some people, I'm living what? The dream. Now, sometimes you can say that cynically. It's August, it's 7 o'clock at night, and your sewer's backed up. You've got to dig a trench to get your septic tank to empty, and you're sweating, and you're up to your neck and muck, and the noceums are on your body like crazy. And somebody says, how are you doing? Your neighbor says, what's going on? He says, how are you doing? I'm living the dream. Look at me, you know, and this is great. But, but a lot of times I'll talk to people. And I'll say, how are you doing? And they'll say, I'm living the dream. And they mean it. They mean it. Epicureanism. Creeping Epicureanism. And so let's just look at what, what Solomon did. He said, I, 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 I want to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. See, there's no biblical orientation. My heart guiding me with my wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he said, I, I became a wine connoisseur. I was reading in the Wall Street Journal an article from three years ago that talked about the growing concern for the ability to become a wine connoisseur. And it talked about a five-day course in southern France. And for $6,000, you can go to this place and you, you work in the vineyard and you take classes and you take wine tasting uh, exhibitions and you uh, learn to distinguish this and that. And so at the end of the week, you take a test. And if you pass the test, you are proclaimed to be a wine connoisseur. $6,000. Solomon was signed up for that course. I want to understand how wine heightens the taste of this or whatever. See, he's not advocating drunkenness. He's not advocating drink until you pass out. He just says, no, I want to become an Epicurean who understands how this wine works with this and this wine works with that. He keeps on going. He says, I, I made great works. Yeah, he built the temple. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted them and all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. This is in the desert. <clears throat> he said, you know, I, I not only built houses, but I developed an, an incredible vineyard system and plant growing system and irrigation. A desert became a garden. He's a Renaissance man. He's an Epicurean. He says, I had great possessions. I had herds and flocks. I was a rancher. More than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. It's true. More than any ever. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and singers and concubines, the delight of the sons of men. I kept from my heart, he says, no pleasure. Creeping Epicureanism. And then, in verse 12, he descends into despair. He says, I considered madness and folly. Verse 13. Then I saw that there is, no, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to them all. 
And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? And I said in my heart, this is vanity. Four, verse 16, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will be forgotten. Then he says this, how the wise dies just like the fool. I've been in the presence of a number of people who have died. I've sat beside someone who is powerful and well-known and wealthy, and this is how they died. They took a breath, and they died. I've been in the presence of people who had spent their whole life in a downward spiral of addiction, and there was no one there for them. And this is how they died. They took a breath, and they breathed no more. So what Solomon is saying here is unarguable. He says, you know, I, I, I looked around me, and, 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 and the wise man and the fool both die the same way. He says, it's, 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 it's folly, and, and you're going to be forgotten. And then he launches out into talking about his family that's behind him. He says, because of this, he says, I hated life. I hated life. Verse 17. Then he says, 18, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool, yet he will be the master of all that I have toiled and, and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. The psalmist says, let me be just bluntly honest. He says, when I die, I'm going to leave my possessions to somebody in my family. And who knows if he's going to be a wise man or a fool. Did some research. There was an article in Time Magazine written by a gentleman who said in 1945, my grandfather died and left behind a, a shirt company worth $75 million. That's 1975, 1945. And he said, and I saw my parents and their siblings through alcohol abuse and bad investments and lavish living spend all of that money in just a few years. I don't know how you do that, but they did. And then he said, because of that, he became a financial planner. He lives in California today and he's written some books. And he gave this statistic and I looked it up and it's true across the board. So, so let me ask you a question, a test. If someone dies with money and they leave it to their kids, how much of that money is gone by the time the kids die? What percentage of that money is gone? Answer, 70%. If they have any to give the grandkids, by the time the grandkids are, are dead, how much of that money is gone? 90%. <laughs> I mean, Solomon's on to something. So Solomon understood that, you know, you work hard, you labor, and it's left, and you may leave it to someone who is an absolute irresponsible fool. And so he says, I hated life. Wow. Now I'm going to compare and contrast three things very quickly. Life's purpose, life's significance, and the return or yield. 
So first of all, the, the purpose. What's life's purpose? He says in chapter 2, verse 3, he says this, I searched with my, my, my heart and how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. Psalmist says, you know, I, I, I lived to lay hold on folly, to try to make the best use of my kid but by laying hold of folly. What's the purpose of life, Paul? He says, I'm going to be an Epicurean. And I'm going to live under the sun. And I'm going to try to lay hold of folly on folly as meaningful as I can. Now, that's a fool's errand, by the way. Conversely, when we talk about what is our purpose in life, we go to the larger catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If, we have, you, if you're a believer, you have purpose. You have dignity if you're a believer or not. But if you're a believer, you really do have purpose. The psalmist says in Psalm 912, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. It teaches, I want to present a heart of wisdom to the living God. Psalm 17, David writes about, it's a very interesting psalm to me. He, he talks about, Lord, save me from wicked men. This is what he says. Listen. Lord, save me from wicked men, from men, O Lord, of this world whose portion is in this life only. And he says this, in your kindness, you, you, you fill their womb with treasure, and they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. So, so David says, Lord, do not let me fall under the, the power of men whose reward is only in this life. Now think about that. All they think about is the here and now. They don't understand they will one day give an account to you. And I love to study, for example, U.S. history. And I love to read the statements by the founding fathers. Um, John Adams, for example, in 1798, wrote to the Massachusetts Assembly, and he said, the U.S. Constitution is written only for men and women who are morally and religious devout. Apart from that, it does not work. Now, and I'll say very quickly, John Adams, I think, left the faith and became a Unitarian. But what he says is that the people who understand this republic understand they will answer to God. If we, live, if we are accountable only to men who live in this life only, all too often you have a Joseph Stalin or a Mao Zedong or a Pol Pot or an Adolf Hitler. It's only this life. David says, protect me from that type of person. But because people who understand that they will answer to God have a calling and a purpose. Secondly, significance significance. Solomon laments, he says in verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it, and behold, it was all vanity and like trying to catch the wind. There's, there's no significance. There's no purpose. Conversely, I think of believers. You know, we say that we've been called into fellowship with Christ and that we have received a calling in our vocation. And so whether our vocation is being a homemaker or an attorney or an accountant or in medicine or in teaching or in auto mechanics or in whatever, that is a calling from God. And one day I will give an account for the way I've lived my life. And I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. There's a sense of, of calling. Revelation 14, our works do follow us. 
What we do for Christ last. I think of 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul says that there is one foundation that's laid in Christ and only one. And on this one foundation, people are building in two different ways. One person builds with wood, hay, and straw. And the other builds with gold, silver, and costly stones. And on the day of judgment, the wood, hay, and straw is consumed. And they will escape as this through the flames. But... Other people build with gold, silver, and costly stones, and they'll hear from the the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul says, I want to live that way because it says in just six chapters later in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body, I make my body my slave so that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. What I am doing right now counts in the kingdom of God, whatever it is. Here's a great quote by Martin Luther King Jr. I love this quote. It just speaks of dignity. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, is he called? He should sweep streets even as a Michelangelo painted or a Beethoven composed music or a Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Amen. Amen. See, life, everything, everything has dignity when you understand that we live above the sun with a biblical world in life. There's a living God who has gifted us and called us to himself and to whom we will answer. You have dignity. You have purpose. Thirdly, is, is the return or the yield. Psalm says, operate on the law of diminishing returns. There's decay and death. And he says, verse 17, I hated life. Verse 18, I hated my labor. Verse 22 and 23, he says, he says this, uh, everything, what has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils underneath the sun? All the days of his life are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. And this is all vanity. He says, there's no enduring legacy. No one remembers. Brothers and sisters, let us be very careful of how we live. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is months away, we believe, from being executed. He says, I I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I've kept the faith. Hmm. In the future there is later for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall award to me, and to all of those who've loved his appearing. James chapter 1 talks about the crown of righteousness, trials, and wisdom. He says this in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Be very careful that you live under the authority of God and not just under the sun.
be very careful to don't walk away from the authority of God in your life. And you let creeping Epicureanism tantalize you. I was at a conference recently in Louisville, Kentucky, three months ago, at Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary, a great seminary. And I uh, was signed up a little bit late, so I had to go about a half mile to another seminary to sleep. And I'd go to the seminary during the day for the conference, and it was a, a denominational seminary, and the people there were very nice, but you walk into their chapel, and you walk around campus, and you see rainbows, and you see literature about um, the LGBT movement, and, and then you look at the names on the buildings, and the people who gave copious amounts of money 70 and 80 years, 100 years ago, and I recognize some of the names as, as godly, godly people who, if they know what's going on, are deeply sorrowful. And I thought, God, let us live with fidelity as unto you. Don't let us be captivated by a creeping unbelief. And I'm just going to be, I was just going to call names. I was, uh, this week I got a theological journal called First Things. I love First Things. It's a wonderful theological journal. And it had an article in there entitled, The Evangelical Lutheran Church of America Hits Rock Bottom. And just as in the background, my, my wife was raised in the Lutheran Church of America. And when I was in Singapore for two years working with young people and coaching basketball, some of my favorite missionaries were Lutheran missionaries. When they were zealous for Christ, preaching the gospel, loved the cross, but through the last decades, the Evangelical Lutheran Church has departed from biblical authority and they've opened the door for all types of issues. And this article was written by a former professor who said, 17 years ago I left the Lutheran Church because I saw what was happening. And he said, many times I thought, did I leave too soon? He said, this summer I went to a youth congress in Houston, Texas with 31,000 high school Lutheran kids. And I was reminded that I did the right thing. Let me just read this one paragraph. He said, the, the, the whole conference, Jesus wasn't mentioned. The cross wasn't mentioned. Salvation wasn't mentioned. A third set of keynoters was a mother and her 11-year-old child, the latter having transitioned from boy to girl, age 11. That, that, that's called child abuse, by the way, in my opinion. The mother, a wife of a Lutheran pastor, opined that her child, though biologically a boy, quote, deeply knows herself to be a girl. She wasn't a boy, we just didn't know that yet, close quote. So the child's congregation had a renaming ceremony on the 10th anniversary of her baptism, her baptism bestowing upon her the name of Rebecca instead of John. I read that and I thought, you don't know whether to cry or throw things. Be very, very careful that you stand under the authority of Scripture and not under the sun. The return or the yield for godliness is a glorious thing. So, so I, I, I come down to this and I just want to say, so what? Read Ecclesiastes 2, so what? And let me say that. There are two 
types of people that it's really easy to preach to. It's the type, one is, is, is the group of people that, that know they have blown it and they are aware of it and they're just at the bottom. You go to an AA rally, AA meeting. The first statement, you know, I, I am powerless. I'm powerless. And they realize that I've got to have, I've got, I need grace. Or you, you talk to people in transition where they're going. I mean, a lot of us really believe there are, there are a ton of young people in the worship center right now. Ton, ton. Everybody in there looks younger because of the young people there. And uh, a lot of these young people believe that if, if, if I just get the right degree and the right job, then I will have ultimate happiness. And you get the right degree and the right job. And you look around in two or three years and you say, is this all there is? You do. We, we, yeah. Or you think, if, if only some people are single, if only I could be married to this person. If I could just be married to this person and really output my coverage, then I will be fulfilled. And I'm not trying to blow anybody's cover here, but let me tell you what, everybody feels a year and a half to two years into marriage. They say this, is this all there is? You know, I really did marry a sinner. My mama was right about him, you know? Or those of us who are struggling, who are struggling with having children. If, if only I could have a child that, that was wonderful and maybe a National Merit Scholar and a scholarship athlete, and th then, then I would be happy. And you get a National Merit Scholar who's a, who's a scholarship athlete, and you say, is this all there is? Augustine said this, guy died in 430, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And that's why creeping Epicureanism will never satisfy your soul. It just won't. So, so the, the, the big issue is, so what? Let me just give you a few things very quickly. And the, the so what to me is this. Listen to me, we've got to live with intentionality. We've got to live with intentionality. Let me show you these pie charts. And so the one is the compartmentalized Christian faith. And down the, the bottom corner in yellow says Jesus. So you've got your, your Jesus slice, your social causes, hobbies, money and stuff, neighbors, friends, spouse, kids, church, and job. And Jesus is, Jesus is there. And if Jesus is just a slice, you know, that ultimately will be more and more marginalized. That's not discipleship. And that's the way a lot of us live. But the other, the other one is, is the, the Lordship of Christ. Christ is central and he touches every area of our life. I'm, I'm just saying that, that, that in, in a culture that pushes you toward Epicureanism at, at every conceivable corner, everywhere we go, here's the mantra, pleasure is good. Pain is bad. Go for pleasure. I'm all in favor of that. But then they take the next step and says, let us show you what pleasure is. Pleasure is being up to your eyeballs in debt. And pleasure is pursuing somebody that may not be your spouse. And pleasure is all about this and this and this. And it's from the pit of hell. And it smells like smoke. And it stinks. So I've got to live with intentionality. I've got to continue to come under the authority of Scripture. Os Guinness, a wonderful thinker from... from uh, 
from Great Britain says that, that our faith has become privately engaging and publicly irrelevant because it is not integrated. And what I'm saying is that Christ must touch every area of our life. If not, we will drift into Epicureanism. It is unavoidable. It's the stuff. We've got to live with intentionality, which means we've got to be in this little diagram. We've got to be in communities of learning where Christ is central and we are transformed by our knowledge of the Bible. See, a disciple is a forgiven sinner who is continuously learning Jesus in repentance and faith. Repentance is making adjustments and fleeing from sin and faith is beholding the beauty of Christ. See, a disciple, a forgiven sinner who is continuously learning Jesus in repentance and faith. I've got to be in faith communities. I've got to be in small groups and teaching places where I study the Bible and know the Bible and we take another step into the light, another step into the light. You see, we know something that the Epicureans around us don't know. We know that there is a great God who made the heavens and the earth. And this great God in the fullness of time was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. And th th this great God has given us the word of God. And he was crucified and rose from the dead. And so we know there is this ongoing push and pull. We know that our Savior said this in John chapter 10. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Do you want to find pasture for your marriage, for your relationships, for your parenting, for your neighborhood endeavor? Enter through the door of Jesus. But there's a, another alternative. He says, the thief the devil comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Human flourishing. Man, that's what I want. So we know this. And so we say, I will not be captured by the Epicurean overtures. Now, so you say, so what? Let me just give you this. I am, I'm, I'm reading through the book of John, I'm meditating on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm amazed, really amazed, at how often money is talked about by the Lord. I mean, time after time after time. You know, you know why? Because he knew we would deal with the Epicurean creep. He knew that we would live in a culture that says a man's life does consist of what he owns. A man's life does consist of what he drives. Does consist of where he goes to school. And yet Jesus says, whoever finds that type of life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I, I, I don't want to be an Epicurean creep person. So, standard. I believe the Bible teaches biblical tithing. You give 10% and more. Somebody said after the first service, the real joy comes when you start giving more than 10%. And I think that's just a standard. That's the way to, am, am I... Falling for the Epicurean creep, look at your checkbook. Some of you are, are younger and, or maybe not younger, and, you've, and you're, just, you're paying off your credit card uh, minimally every month. And I, I'm sorry you got there. We have failed you by telling you don't do that. 
And you say, well, right now I can barely breathe. Then get together with an elder or somebody that can help you think through this and, and say, well, let, let's, and some of you go say, well, no, do 10%. Start at 3% and then say next year it's going to be 6 and then two years from now we're going to be at 10. I'm going to do this and this and this. Because God, and God blesses those who honor him. I was raised in a wonderful home. My mom and dad, two weeks ago, celebrated their 70th anniversary, 70 years. I did some research, and I think my math is right, that one one-hundredth of one percent of people are married 70 years or more. So they're in a very small demographic, wonderful people. Ra- raised in a, really in a non, non-Bible-believing church, but my mom and dad were faithful. Let me tell you, this is one thing I just remember. My dad, my, my dad worked five days a week installing carpet and linoleum floors and broken tile porches. And I worked with him for a number of summers, installing carpet and linoleum and broken tile porches. It's hard work. In fact, I will confess this to you. We installed a lot of shag carpet. Now, those of you who are a little bit older, shag carpet is the most horrible thing that's ever been invented in the history of man. It's right next to botulism. It was just horrible. It was just a disease-breeding ground and just ugly. I don't Oh, anyway. So my dad, that's my dad. And so my dad loved to dress well. And he was a good dresser. He was a good dresser. And so I remember every Sunday morning, I'm a kid growing up, every Sunday morning, we're getting ready to go to church. My dad's always ready to go at least 30 minutes before we leave the house. My dad has always been 10 minutes early for every meeting unless I'm driving. And then he just develops deep consternation in his spirit. Anyway, so my dad would sit down at the table every Sunday morning in his suit and get out the big checkbook, and he would write his check, put his envelope, put it inside his coat, put it in the offering plate. That spoke volumes to me. It still does. And he occasionally would, um, on Easter or Christmas or High holiday there in Yadkin County, my brother and I would wear our suits, a new tie. We'd come into the room, and my dad always said this. He says, son, you and your brother look like Philadelphia lawyers. Never forget that. Philadelphia lawyers. I don't know what Phil, I mean, Philadelphia lawyers. Denver lawyers or, you know, Santa Fe lawyers. I don't know, but he said that, you know. So I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, don't let... The Epicurean fantasy through your soul. Let Jesus through your soul. Whether you're 18 or 88, understand that you've been called to something that has dignity and purpose, called the kingdom of God. And we have to intentionally live in such a way that we honor him. Let's pray. Lord, for this day and for this opportunity just to worship, so thankful. So thankful. God, help us to kick hard against a culture that I think in many ways is well-meaning. They're not trying to be malicious. That screams at us a man's life and his worth is based upon ethnicities or incomes or zip codes or CVs. Help us to kick against that. Help us live with intentionality in communities of faith and worship where the Bible is let loose in our lives, 
for the glory of your name and the advancement of your kingdom and our own good. Teach us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.